Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should? Then welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. Today, we are with Dr. Alan Berger and Dan Griffin together. Uh, You may recall Dr. Alan Berger. He came on and he talked about his book, Love Secrets Revealed. Well, he also happens to be an internationally recognized expert in the science of addiction recovery and in processed focus. Focused recovery counseling. He wrote the popular mainstay, 12 Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery, also 12 Smart Things to Do When the Booze and Drugs Are Gone, and 12 Hidden Rewards of Making Amends, and just released the sequel to his first book, 12 More Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery. His website is abphd.com. And then, of course, we've got Dan Griffin, his buddy. Uh, they're there together waiting to jump in. Partners in crime, Michelle. Partner in crime, partner in crime. And Dan is also an expert in addiction recovery. He is a senior fellow at the Meadows with a focus on helping men who have experienced trauma. Welcome to both of you guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's yeah. good to be here. Yeah. Thanks. Dan, have you also written a slew of books? I've written a couple. A uh, couple? <laughs> I wrote A Man's Way Through the Twelve Steps. I wrote uh, A Man's Way Through Relationships. I co-authored Helping Men Recover. Alan and I are working on a book called What Men Would Tell You If They Weren't Too Busy Watching TV. (laughs) (laughs) And we're really excited for that one. And then I've got two more in the works, one that's focused on fathers um, and another one that's really focused on exploring this whole concept I call the man rules. That's amazing. uh, Looking at men in the 21st century. That's awesome. Now, Dr. Berger had told us in the last episode that we did together about how he got interested in his field. And so, Dan, why don't you share with us how you were attracted to what you do today? Well, I got fired from a job. Um, This is no joke, actually. I was very early in my own recovery. I've been blessed with recovery now for 22 years, and I got, got into recovery when I was 21, um, I got fired from another job, um, mm-hmm. and that was a kind of pattern for me. And was it just for being drunk on the job, or what? No, it was just being an asshole on the job. Mm. <laughs> okay. Um, it really was. I just was very immature, very um, undisciplined, irresponsible. But bottom line is, there was an opening at the State Psychiatric Hospital for Children in Virginia. And I applied, I got into it, and it just kind of opened up this whole new area of my life. And, um, you know, I, I, I found some real passion, some real connection with it, did my graduate work. I trained at Hazelden as a clinician, and um, here I am. Awesome. Now, is that how the two of you met? Was that Hazelden? No, the two of us met on a tennis court, believe it or not. We were both speaking at a conference. It was the West Coast Symposium on Addictive Disorders, and I was there giving a, a presentation, and Dan was giving a presentation, and I went down to the tennis club because, you know, I love to get out and hit some balls, and I says, God, is there anybody that's interested in playing tennis? And Dan was looking for someone, and, and then we get on the court, and we discover we have all these parallel interests. Hmm. And, you know, what started out is hitting some balls together, became a friendship, became a professional relationship, a personal relationship, and we've just uh, 
enjoyed and grown from each other's presence in our lives for quite some time now. Yes, it was love at first stroke. That's, that could be many times. <laughs> is this R-rated or is this... You know what? It's explicit on iTunes, so you can say whatever you need to. They <laughs> can use their imagination on that. I certainly did. That's exactly where my mind went. I chose my wording very carefully. <laughs> All right, so let's get into your expertise off the tennis court, <laughs> and let's talk about. We're not going to make a perfect. We're not going to make a living on the tennis courts. Trust me, we're both no. players, but you're not going to see us at Wimbledon next year. <laughs> In the stands, hopefully. But In the stands, right? Fun. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be cool. So let's talk about addiction recovery. You're both experts in this. What is the science of addiction recovery? Well, you know, I think the first thing is, is that we're learning a lot about what it takes for someone to be able to get honest with themselves enough to face their problem. And then what is the process? What are the things that need to happen in a person's life for them to now deconstruct their old way of living, which was so you know, integrally connected to drinking and using and all of the consciousness that goes with that to now constructing a new life based on a whole different set of principles. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're looking at. And, you know, when I say it that way, that's what, a, what an endeavor, huh? It's a huge endeavor. Huge. A absolutely. I, <clears throat> you know, one of the in, in some of my trainings, I talk a little bit about this. And, you know, in 1998, there really was a seminal article written by Adam, Alan Leshner, who at that time was the head of NIDA. And he said, addiction is a brain disease. And that, that article has really been um, a kind of call to action in many ways for the field. It was at that point that the addictions field really got honest and bold about saying, this is an illness. And it's a brain-based illness, and this is what the research is really showing incontrovertibly. And so I would say in those, you know, 20 years, um, it's really been a fascinating journey of us learning all of the mechanisms of the brain that really support addiction and that support recovery and how we're creating these new neural pathways, the, the whole interaction of the chemicals of the drugs and neurotransmitters. And of course, I think we're seeing a lot of connection to pre-existing trauma, not as a cause, but certainly as an exacerbating factor. Wow. So that was actually going to be one of my questions is like, why do addictions even begin to occur? Is there an event or is it just a predisposition? Is it genetic? Why do they happen? Yes. Yeah. Yes to all of that. It's, it's, it's very interesting because there, there seem to be a lot of different causes, right? So, so what we look at is really a multi-causal model. And the one way that I think about it, if we just focus on the cultural aspect, and there's others, there's genetic and, and I'll mention many, even family issues in terms of what's going on in a family that can relate to this. But in terms of the culture, there's a huge setup in our culture that says, that pain is bad, so we're pain phobic, we want to run away from pain, and that somehow life should be easy, and that our job is to find the path of least resistance. So you take that mentality, mm -hmm. and that just sets us up to become, to look for a solution, and you know, when 
I first drank, it worked. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it solved it. You know, I briefly talked about my history last time, but it solved the pain and suffering I was going through and losing my father. I mean, that really made me feel whole again and connected to me and seemed to be a solution to that emotion and all these other feelings of inadequacy and security I was going through, not knowing how to deal with my feelings. And when I was drinking, none of that mattered. Right. So it seemed like a solution. And I think that captures a lot of people in terms of beginning the addiction cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's a great point about how emotionally disconnected and alienated you know I'm a trained sociologist so I did my master's work on this on these ideas but you know the alienation of our modern society is profound and the emotional disconnection that comes with that is profound now is everybody who's who's experiencing that an, an addict or a person with an addiction and do they have the same disposition no genetics seems to show significantly family systems, like Alan said. Um, so there's a lot of mechanisms. And I would say that there's still a lot of, that's not completely clear. Why does one person in a family get it and another person in the family doesn't get it? And, and um, you know, the, the genetic factor is clear. And it's also clear that if you don't use anything, you won't engage that genetic factor. So there's a lot of alcoholics, you know, people with addictive disorders who never actually open that genetic disposition because they never use, and so it doesn't happen. Um, but I think what we're also finding is this pain that Alan's talking about. You take the genetic predisposition and then the pain that somebody has, and then you have this lock and key that kind of gets enacted by the whatever substance they take, and it's like, oh, wow. I have, it's that, it's that experience I think a lot of people in recovery talk about. When I had my first drink, it was like, it was like the world shifted, the world changed. And a lot of us kind of have that experience. I don't know that scientifically we've been able to narrow that down, but I think that's what a lot of people kind of talk about. Yeah, very much so, very much so. So, so see, that starts a whole thing in cycle. So now if you've got a genetic predisposition and you're using alcohol or other drugs and they have this kind of an effect on you, well, you're sitting duck now to start to develop this disease. And when the disease develops, and this is very important, Michelle, is as Dan was saying, the brain gets hijacked. And we used to think it was specific parts of the brain, like the pleasure center, the amygdala and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Well, recent studies have shown that the entire brain gets employed in this process. And so what starts to happen is all of your thinking starts to change along these lines. Your motivation, the way you're looking at the world, and what I say is that co what corresponds or what's happening at the same time that your brain is changing is you have a shift in your personality. And now you start to develop now in what I call an addict self, an alcoholic self, but now you've got a whole personality change that supports all these brain changes, which now becomes the vehicle that you make contact with the world with, right? So my brain kind of gets expressed through my personality. And it's our personality that as that changes, now the addiction gets full-blown. 
And so tell me more about this this new personality that comes about. Is it always a negative personality? Like Dan was saying, he, he was turning into an asshole at work. Well, no. That it, but see, what it is is, though, it's, it's a very interesting thing. That personality starts to change to support the use of alcohol and other drugs. So now your whole life becomes centered around that way of life. So your thinking changes. Now it's all about hedonism. Man, mm. what's going to be fun for me? So now we become totally oriented on what's good for me. How's it going to be fun? We become incredibly, everybody's selfish to a certain degree. But when this disease starts, we become so self-centered, selfish. And, and you, you really, I, I love how you talk about it because you really change your orientation the 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 substance or substances are now the solution and at multiple levels of yourself and personality you're making that connection and so and so long as that the use of those substances is not really on the table as being a possible problem everything else then has to be rearranged to ensure that those substances are not seen as the problem. So it's not really that I'm drinking too much. It's just I happen to marry a really crazy person. It's, it's not yeah. that my use has really gotten a problem. The cops are out to get me. You know, I just got to stop going down that same highway. I got to find a new highway. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's because it's just not possible that this, this substance that has now kind of become my go-to piece for, for existing could be the option. And so that's why I, I, I don't think we like the term denial, but you have to get somebody to shift and see their, their full experience of the substances and the relationship they've created. Yeah, and that's a big step to take because, I mean, I just think about my friends and I, we joke about how we've had a stressful week and we can't wait to go out to happy hour on Friday. You know, and like we're just looking forward to that that time when we can just kind of like let it all go, let our hair down, so to speak. And so, you know, how do you know, how do you get to that point where you can identify, oh, I'm looking to alcohol or whatever else to drown out or numb myself from stress that I'm having. And it's because most people don't look at it in those compartments like that. No, no. And listen, and what we're not saying that the use of alcohol in that way is means you're an addict. It doesn't. That's people use alcohol that way to relax, to to deal with their stress, and if it's not causing problems in your life, rock and roll. Yeah, have fun. Right, right. Okay, so when you say if it's not causing problems, <laughs> what, Dan? Have one for us. Oh. <laughs> so how do you know if it's, like, what are some examples of some problems? Now, what are the problems? Like Dan was saying, I get a DUI. Mm-hmm. And now instead of me looking at the fact that what am I doing drinking and driving, you look at what was going on, how, how unfair it was the way that cop stopped me. He didn't have a right to stop me. So you start to justify the problems you're having. And this is what I say, the way our mind changes, the way, as Dan was talking about, our, our orientation changes, is we turn what's right into wrong, and more importantly, we make what's wrong seem like it's right. Mm-hmm. And that's the shift in consciousness that's so tough because the alcoholic is in what we call a sincere delusion. They believe what they're doing is okay and that their problem is just that everybody else is just giving them, you know, 
brief about what they're what's going on. Mm-hmm. So they cannot see at that moment that what's going on. So what we say is that if alcohol or drugs or whatever you're doing, because we'll talk about process addictions too in a moment here, but if whatever you're doing is causing problems and despite that fact you continue to drink or use or act out in whatever way, that suggests it's become too important. The, the building of a tolerance. The building of a tolerance, for the most part, is at least one signifier of a possible addiction. Now, with certain medications, you build a tolerance no matter what because of the, the severity, in some ways, of the, um, the chemical bind to the neuroreceptors. So, like um, opiates, you can develop a, um, a dependency to an opiate and a tolerance in some ways, but that doesn't necessarily show addiction but what happens is when you're when you need to be done with it and you continue to use it or when you have people talking to you and saying gosh you know i have some concerns about you or and and once people are starting to talk to you that's the first sign that something is amiss the rest of your world is now saying they see something different and the challenge is that as as alan says the the more the personality kind of develops this relationship this seclusive relationship around the substance the more other people become just barriers and even threats to Mm. that relationship and so you could have five of your best friends and you guys go out to the bar. Four of you are like always doing great. You, ha- you have one or two, maybe you have three. One, when one of them's got to drive, they know what to do. But then there's the other one who's like goes out but has a lot more to drink. You find that yourselves like she goes off and you're not sure where she is. She calls you the next day or she calls you later that night and she's crying. She's having these emotional reactions. It's clear that how she's experiencing alcohol and even that social activity is different. And then that's when hopefully friends will say, this is what we're noticing. And, you know, would you be willing to have a conversation with us or someone else to just see? And a common reaction to that, as Dan is pointing out, Michelle, is that at first the person's going to make everybody else wrong. You don't want me to have a good time. Mm-hmm. You don't care about me. You just want me to do things your way. They're going to find You guys something. are doing it. We've been doing it. We've been doing it for five years going out. And you drink as yeah, much as I, I do. That's, that's <laughs> such a common one we could do. Say it, you know, in concert. So, mm-hmm. you see, that that's the kind of stuff that happens. And it becomes very, very difficult. My mentor, Dr. Rader, he was a brilliant psychiatrist and I think one of the first addictionologists. He had a very interesting observation, and Dan, as a sociologist, can really resonate to this. In our culture, our tolerance for drinking is so high that we just expect people to drink a lot of alcohol. So by the time somebody's drinking seems anomalous, like an abnormality, they've crossed that line because we tolerate such a high level of drinking 
and using in this culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is probably why it's also difficult to know whether or not you have a real addiction until it gets to like a far reaching problem. Like you've gotten a DUI or you've gotten an accident or something major has happened. Take somebody to DUIs, let's say, or they Mm -hmm. get divorced. So you're right on. It is one of the reasons why it takes a lot of what we call these adverse experience, right? These aversive experiences with in your relationship with alcohol or other drugs to start to say, I better look at this relationship I have. It's not a good one anymore. Mm-hmm. And you're right. And one of the reasons is because is our tolerance for this behavior is so high in this culture. Now, you take, let's say, the Mormons. There's a zero tolerance, right? So when somebody starts to drink in that culture, doesn't take much to start to see that somebody's got a problem or in other cultures that have a different you know degree of tolerance but we have a high one in, in the U- United States mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so let's talk about the processed focused recovery counseling how does that work well one of the things that I do in this approach to counseling is to help people become aware of what they're doing and how they're doing it So what I say is the problem is never the problem. It's how you're dealing with what's going on that's the problem. So I will get someone to now become aware of their relationship with the part of them that wants to drink and use and to have a dialogue with that part, to separate them out from that part. So they'll put, let's say, that addict self in a chair across from them when I'm working with them, and I will have them talk to that part. And it's amazing the kind of dialogue that has. That part will say things like, well, you need me. What are you going to do without me? Mm-hmm. I mean, so there's this full-blown dependency that's developed. And now when the person starts to kind of externalize what we call the conflict or the relationship, they now have a chance to become aware of what they're doing and now get in touch with, is this really Is this relationship I'm having with this part of me in my best interest? Is this really serving me or is it causing me some serious problems? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I build on a lot is helping people become aware of what's going on and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So awareness is the first piece in my mind. And so what, what other tools do you give to people to stay on track and not fall off the wagon? Because we all have triggers that happen, right? That make us want to fall back into old behaviors. There, you want to tackle that? Well, you know, I think part of what we try to really help people with is to take away the shame, because it's really it's it's really a um, challenging experience, and it, it really um, baffling in many ways to to not be able to control something, to to literally put something in your body and not be able to to really have the on and off switch. Mm -hmm. And of course, when other people do, the easy suggestion is, well, you, if you cared about us, you quit, or why can't you just quit or you're weak or this. So that develops the shame. So one of the most important elements of the early recovery process is to help the person take away the shame. And, and I would say our field has not always done that in the best way because we have a history of kicking people out of treatment for expressing the symptoms of the illness for which they're being treated. Yeah. And we're the, we're the only field that does that. Um, you know, if in other illnesses and especially chronic illnesses, you don't kick a diabetic out because, you know, they have slipped 
or they have not followed the protocol. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to do some soul searching, continue to do some soul searching about how we want to respond when somebody continues to use, because it's exactly what you said. If, if the norm for me is to use, then should you expect me to just stop right away? Or do we want to create a relationship that helps me learn how to navigate my usage and, and, and understand why I continue to use, even though it's causing me all these problems? And, and I think that's a shift that we're starting to make um, that stops shaming people for the illness. And even the people who are treating people who have the illness to stop shaming them. Right. And then the other part of this, too, then, is to help people become aware of their own toxic attitudes. So if I've got this attitude is I am less of a person because I have a limitation, that's going to make it hard for me to accept the fact that I have this disease I have to deal with the rest of my life. And see, and in our culture, having limitations seems to be a bad thing mm -hmm. because we're this can-do culture, right? We mm -hmm. can do anything you put your mind to. Well, my God, if, if I'm dealing with a professional athlete and I'm trying to help them deal with their addiction, it's really tough because they're used to being able to use their willpower to power through something, mm -hmm. you know, get, get to the other side. So one of the things we do, what Dan is saying, is not only do we have to look at how we're shaming people, but how is a person, you know, organized within themselves? What attitudes and beliefs do they have that make it very difficult for them to accept what is happening for themselves and then support the recovery? So what we do is we flip things around. You're not less when you have a limitation. You're more when you accept that. You're more of a man or a better person. You're not less of a person who does that. But you see, we're now trying to deal with changing the wiring. Right. That's a big shift in one's thinking and consciousness. So we say all the time, you can't solve a problem with the consciousness that's creating it. So we have to have someone become aware of how they're, what these toxic attitudes are that are interfering with them having a, a you know a healthier lifestyle and being able to better take or take better care of themselves, and now give them some idea of what the alternatives are. Mm -hmm. It's a big thing for me when I was able to own what was going on without feeling like I was less of a man because I admitted I was powerless. And you talk a lot about this, Dan, in your work. Well, for men in particular, right? I mean, Michelle, you know the messages around being men, be yeah. strong, don't yeah. be weak, don't be vulnerable, don't ask for help. I mean, so many of what I call the man rules are contrary to what we want men to do in order to get into recovery. We say you got to have power, and then we say, but you got to admit you're powerless. Never be weak, and yet you have to say that you can't control something. Never be vulnerable, don't ask for help, but yet if you don't ask for help, you're not going to get better. And so there's really this um, fascinating tension and dichotomy that exists for so many men in how we're raised. And if we want to step into a healthy recovery, um, you know, and that's probably even another conversation because it, it really is such a deep and nuanced uh, experience. But going back to what Alan said is if we have to remember that the person's life has been oriented around the substance. And so there really are some basic skills that they have to learn how if I'm if I was one of the five people that was always going out with you and now I'm sober and you all still want to always go out and you're not exactly sure what to do I either have to find healthy ways 
to let you know that I really want to be with you, but I can't go to the bar. It's too vulnerable for me. I need to learn how to take care of myself so that if I'm in an uncomfortable situation, that mechanism that says, when you're scared, take a drink. When you're stressed, take a drink. Because mm -hmm. that's really the mechanism of addiction. It's rooted in the part of the brain that processes and deals with stress. And the message that you get is any intense emotion, any stress, use something to take it away. And in fact, we even know that the, the way that the chemicals of drugs work in the neuroreceptor sites is exactly like the natural chemicals that are meant to do that naturally. They're meant to help us soothe ourselves naturally. They're meant to help us get excited naturally. And they, those chemicals and drugs mimic that. And so once the more you introduce the drugs, the less the brain is producing those because it thinks it's already getting them. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine, I mean, there's so much going on. You said it's a very nuanced process because the person who has an addiction has to kind of battle within themselves with that piece of themselves. But then they also have to deal with everyone outside of themselves, their friends, their family and all of that. Do you find that a lot of your, the people, the men that you work with or women that you work with struggle with losing friendships, um, having breaks with family members because they are now sober? Yes. Yes. And, and that's one of the things that happens is that either, and that's one of the reasons why in the literature, the best outcome is when the entire family gets involved. Because now they start to make changes and deal with the adjustment challenges that come in recovery. You know, let's take the situation where the wife has, has, is now in recovery and has never had sex with her husband sober. Well, that's going to be a challenge for her. How does she go in the bedroom and get naked if she's not feeling great about herself and her body mm -hmm. and now have sex with him because before she'd get drunk and it wouldn't matter? Mm -hmm. So you see, it's those kinds of adjustments in recovery in those issues that need to be dealt with. If everybody's present, wow, it's great if I have the husband and wife in a session together to talk about that. Yeah. Now, one of the things we're seeing is that there's still, even though we know this, there are very few treatment centers that engage the whole family, and, and a lot of it's a lot of it's money driven. I mean, it's money driven in the sense that you know we kind of put ourselves in this situation thirty years ago, but um, it's a very reimbursement insurance driven uh, industry, and we have not done the best job of really showing the industry how critical family focused services are for the health of the individual. You know, we, we say all the time, the, the leaders of the family-focused services like Claudia Black and the folks who um, really helped emphasize the importance of how much the family is affected by the, by the person with the addictions um, illness is, you know, it's a, very, it's a very hard illness because one person uses and the whole family gets sick. Mm-hmm. And so you've got what Alan's talking about as far as the family component. Another reason why support groups are so, mutual support groups are so great. They get, they get knocked for multiple reasons and sometimes it's justified. But the reality is you find a community of people who are trying to figure out how to live their lives, how to deal with past trauma, how to create relationships in the context of literally having had their legs lopped off in some ways. I mean, it, it's that significant 
of the relationship that we're all supporting one another in navigating it and it makes it less lonely, it reduces the shame. There's still a lot of shaming in our society in general mm -hmm. about people who look weak, about people who are addicted. We have this love-hate relationship with people with addictions. We love to watch them crash and then we build them up in their redemption. <laughs> but you know what? We'd love to watch them crash again and still you know, vilify them without yeah. putting the larger context of the illness around that experience. Ugh. So this explains, too, why you would probably shift your entire friendship circle, too, because there will likely be people who won't understand what you're going through well, if they're able to stop at two drinks. No, that's very true. I, I came back from Vietnam, and I was in Hawaii when I ended up getting sober, but I was discharged, or discharged from the Marine Corps in 1972, and I went back to Chicago, where I grew up, and all my friends were back there still drinking and using, so... You know, that once they found that, hey, Burger's home, they'd come over to the house, they'd bring a 12-pack with them and of old style, and they'd sit down and say, hey, let's have a few beers and let's talk about what it was like over there. Mm -hmm. And I'm not drinking. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm telling them, look, and I'll, I'll have a water while you guys have that, or I'll take a diet squirt, but I, I don't drink anymore. Well, after about a half an hour, they're starting to get glassy-eyed. Our conversation is really changing a lot, and pretty soon... I don't have anybody visiting me anymore, mm. you know, because they weren't connecting with me like we used to connect and got stupid together and crazy together and laughing together. And, and now it was a different experience. So you're so right on, Michelle. That changed for me. And look, that was part of the loss that I experienced in my recovery. As many things as I was gaining, there were also things that I was grieving in terms of the loss about this. So what we say is that recovery kind of goes through stages. In this first stage we're talking about, that we're learning how to break the bond to the addiction and to create a foundation to support our recovery. Once that's pretty solid, you start to move into stage two recovery, which is now learning how to live and to deal with all of the issues that you need to deal with to have better relationships, to have healthier relationships. See, that's the second stage of recovery. And that's where a lot of people who have a good foundation in stage one, if they don't get to work on those behavioral patterns that cause difficulty in being able to connect in a good way in relationships and to be able to have healthier relationships, they start to suffer terribly in their sobriety, mm -hmm. right? And now that opens the door. And what Dan and I say all the time is that when you have trouble in your recovery, it doesn't mean something's wrong. It means that you're getting an invitation to take the next step, that there's something you've got to look at to start addressing. And so our relationship to pain changes. You see, instead of seeing it as something we got to get rid of, now we see it as something we got to unpack the message. What is this pain telling me? Where is it hurting? What am I doing that's causing that? And now I can get to work on growing myself. Mm -hmm. And that's what stage two and stage three recovery is about, is growing ourselves in full recovery, learning how to deal with our emotions, learning how to have emotional sobriety, and in stage three, we're actualizing our potential. Mm -hmm. you Do you ever find that some of your people that you work with go a little too far with that? Maybe they develop a, a self-righteous attitude towards oh, the people who are still <laughs> drinking? 
part of the immaturity. See, that's what starts to show up in the stage yeah. two recovery because they it, that's how they were dealing with life before anyway. So now they've just taken what they were doing before and they're doing it sober. <laughs> that, that, that's actually how you know somebody's still stuck in that stage one. It's like that that adherence. Like the, the, I love the the self righteous right because you see it so much. It's fear based. It's you know there's still a lot of shame. There's actually if you can find it, I show it in my training sometimes. There's a clip on YouTube from The Onion. Um, I love The Onion. Yeah, so The Onion does one where um, they, they have a guy in recovery and the other people are doing an intervention on him because of, you know, like a woman, a woman says, oh, I used to hate it. My dad would come home from AA meetings and I would just be in bed and I'd, I'd listen and I'd hear that door open. I thought, oh my God, here comes my dad and he's going to open my door and apologize for something. <laughs> And the and the wife tells the main guy, she's like, Bob, it's it's your recovery. It's causing a problem. <laughs> I, I go to meetings, I don't hurt anybody. She's like, You're obnoxious. <laughs> yes. Yes. So yeah. you're right. It's it's um I've been that guy. I've been that guy. And at some at some level, we need that. We need to have this almost desperate attachment to our sobriety because it's a desperate attachment to life, to living. If we can't get through that um, and we stay stuck, it's a really, really hard way to live. And that's when those process addictions continue to drive a lot of people. So they're in meetings, but they just don't really know how to relate very well to people. They've still got a lot of trauma, past tra childhood trauma, past trauma from their using that they haven't dealt with. And we know trauma affects the brain. And so we know that in experiences of intense intimacy and, and intense stress, those traumas can be triggered. And so people who are pretty grounded in not using alcohol and other drugs, they can get really, really off track um, really quick and can and can still cause a, a lot of damage. I mean, the it's a fascinating, fascinating illness to watch and to really kind of think about recovery. And Alan and I are really, really committed to trying to help people see when they're in stage one, how to get to stage two, and even get our field and our you know the 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 twelve step community as a whole to really. Uh, once again, embrace this idea of stage two, stage three as a necessary part of evolution um, and not something of happenstance or that maybe some people need but others don't. And see, and the challenge becomes one is when you have counselors that aren't doing the stage two. <laughs> right, work, that's right. Is it's hard for them <laughs> to take their clients to that place because, you know, Dan goes out and does a lot of training. I do a lot of training in terms of helping, you know, Counselors learn how to how to work with people in this process focused way, and what we keep running into is where the counselor hasn't done his work. He's mm. not able to help the person. That's scary to and think that scary. the person that you're kind of leaning on for support is also struggling. Yeah. Now, now let's be let's be fair. If you were to line up every single psychologist and social same worker, <laughs> same, issue. You know, same issue. This isn't yeah. our field. This yeah. is those who it's, find it's, it's all over. See, yeah. it's just it's just the truth is is that see that 
that I'm only as good of an instrument as I work on myself to sharpen myself as that instrument, which means my ongoing evolution, and this is my mentor Kempler used to say, you can't, you can tell a very, very good therapist, not necessarily by the orientation they have, but by how much they're growing as they're doing their work. Because what I confront in that therapy, Michelle, is confronting my own self and my own issues. Right. And there are going to be, there's been times and will continue to be times when what's going on with a client now invites me to see something and deal with something in myself, even in terms of how I've dealt with the client. Mm-hmm. I've made a lot of mistakes in my career because I didn't see some of my own biases. Wow. It's a very imperfect process right now. And I think being human is a very imperfect process. Totally. So, you know, we have to we have to give ourselves and give others in the field, you know, some some breathing room to make their mistakes. And though it, and this is something Alan and I do everywhere we go. We do want to challenge those people who are working in the field because they have a responsibility. You know, people who get into this field get into it saying that they just really want to help others and they want to make a difference in other people's lives. What they don't realize is the biggest difference that they're being called to make is in the lives of the person looking back at them in the mirror. (laughs) Wow. That's deep. Is this why it's so damn expensive to go to a rehab center? <laughs> well, listen, the, the cost of a program doesn't guarantee you quality. We know that. God I, you know that. I mean, I, I was out in Moultrie, Georgia, and God bless these folks. They are dealing with the people off the street. And I'll tell you, the guys and the gals going into that treatment program get as Good a care, if not better care, than I see happening in Malibu in these sixty thousand right. beds a month. Oh. So it really, it really is a program's commitment to the quality of care into, into helping grow the staff. Absolutely, I mean that is the number one resource that every program has, and if they invest in that, Dan and I have seen this. We go out and do these trainings. When we leave, these people are excited about what they've learned. They're excited about what they're doing. Now they bring a new energy, a new perspective, new information into the work, and they can continue to grow it. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, a good program that invests in their counselors that way. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts for or re- additional resources that people can look into if maybe they're not sure if they have an addiction yet or they're they're kind of considering looking into it some more, but they're not really ready to go to rehab full on? Look, my book, 12 Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery, if somebody starts to just read that, they're going to start to understand what addiction looks like because I talk about a lot of things that people do is they say, well, I think I only have a problem with alcohol, but I can use other drugs. I mean, these are common ways that people try to fool themselves. So that's one resource that people can have to start looking at this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you know another good one for people just coming in, a good primer? I I think where a person should start, whether it's with a book, a therapist, you know, I think people see rehab as like this, oh, I failed, I got to go to rehab. Right, it's all over. You got to... It's over, oh my God. But really what... And, and sometimes it's unfortunate because people don't give um, uh, individuals enough of an opportunity to explore their options. It's like, oh, you got a problem, you got to go to rehab. As opposed to, we have a lot of concerns about what's happening. Let's work together to see what we can come up with. And rehab or residential treatment might be 
one of the options might be something that is part of that. Um, and so a good therapist can help. There are good books out there that are written specifically to help you know, individuals begin to even see. I, I have a friend who was um, really wondering about whether or not he was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And I suggested that he read what's called the, um, the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's actually a really good textbook for somebody who has a problem with alcohol. If you see yourself and your experiences in that book, yeah. then chances are it's something to really pay attention to. And that's a great, a great reference. I'll Quit Tomorrow is a book that Vern Johnson wrote that I think has also got a great description of what happens and where that line is. Mm-hmm. The Narcotics Anonymous has a basic text as well, just like the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So if somebody's using drugs. So all of these programs now, SLA, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous, you can get a textbook from any one of these, and there are going to be anecdotes of people's lives that are in recovery in the program, and that's one way to start exploring this. The, the other way, and sometimes this gets um, this is difficult for people, but if they're at a place where they really you know, are thinking that this could be them, the mutual support groups, the 12-step community, they have what's called open meetings. And open meetings are where you can go, you don't have to say anything, and people are not expecting you to identify or that you're even necessarily there because you consider yourself or you identify as a person with an addiction. And so you can learn, you can listen to how people are talking and kind of get a sense of... Um, you know, if this might fit for you. There's another guy, Kevin McCauley, and I'm trying to remember his book. Oh, Pleasure Unwoven. It's a DVD. Okay. It's a DVD. It's called Pleasure Unwoven, and he goes through the brain science of addiction. If somebody wants to learn more about addiction, yeah. that would be a great, That's, great resource. Yeah, one of the best presentations of, I think, the neurochemistry of addiction That's I've right. ever seen That's in right. a very accessible way. Yeah, makes makes brings it down so that anybody can understand what he's talking about. That's awesome. You can also send an email to me. I'm sure Dan, my my email address is abphd at msn.com. I'll be more than willing to answer anybody's questions on this stuff. Absolutely. Mine's Dan at dangriffin.com and very, very open. And, And, you know, the thing about us is we really try to walk our talk. If it's something that we can't help somebody with, we'll absolutely find someone who can't. That's awesome. I am so grateful that the two of you came on together. I was a little surprised when Dan just popped into our conversation today. <laughs> yeah, Thank- I popped him in everywhere. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's one of Alan's great, great qualities. He's very generous with his... Uh, experiences. <laughs> well, thank you to both of you. Are you going to hit the tennis court now and do some, yeah, some ball stroking? Could, I'm going to head the office. Dan's going to get ready to fly out and go to the Meadows to conduct a workshop. And, nice. you know, the Meadows is another great resource for people in terms of, you know, all kinds of different aspects of addiction and process addiction. And so if anybody's out there struggling, I would highly recommend the Meadows. Absolutely. And that's such an important point because what the Meadows does is they look at addiction, they look at trauma, and they look at codependency. And so they really try to meet people where they're at and experiencing any kind of intense suffering, that's where they meet you. So your suffering doesn't have to be just specifically about alcohol and other drugs. It could be 
a number of things that people kind of make contact with the meadows about and saying, this is the suffering I'm experiencing. How can you help me? And then we will do everything we can at the meadows to make sure that um, that person gets what they need. And again, if we can't provide it, then they'll get referred to someone else who can. But it's a really important point um, that I appreciate Alan bringing up, given that I'm a senior fellow. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle, thanks again. I look forward to doing this whenever it makes sense for you. I want to support what you're doing. I love what you're doing. Thank you. Keep up the great work. Thank you. And uh, you guys are awesome. Everybody out there listening, please go to abphd.com, dangriffin.com, and uh, I look forward to staying in touch with both of you guys. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.